Greetings and welcome to episode 25 of the Fi Buy, your favorite source for rapid fire board game reviews. This episode, we have Catherine starting our journey with Transatlantic. Lindsay takes us out to the black with a handful of stars. I cover the Hobbit game Rhino Hero Super Battle. You can bet on Ruth to give us a great review of Las Vegas. And last but certainly not least, we kick back and find our chill with Stephanie and Bob Ross. Impeccably researched by Matt Gertz and published by PD Verlog and distributed by Rio Grande Games, Transatlantic thematically shares the precipitous lives of steamships during the Age of the Blue Riband, when ships would compete to see who could carry the most cargo across the Atlantic in the least amount of time. Transatlantic cannot be reviewed without a nod to its predecessor, the well-regarded and favorite of mine, Concordia. But don't get this game because you love Concordia. I've seen from the comments on BGG that this is the main cause of lower ratings. It's important to note that this is not a reimagining of Concordia. Transatlantic was designed from the ground up as an ode to the Age of Steam, and it was in the process of creating that experience that Gertz decided to borrow mechanisms from two of his well-known games, Concordia and Navigador. Like Concordia, you are managing a hand of action cards, which you use each turn to build ships to benefit financially from the ships that you've already deployed, to build more infrastructure to support your engine for coal, money, or points, or to take your cards back into your hand. Taking these cards back into your hand can only be done when you've played a minimum of five cards on preceding turns. Taking your cards back is the only way in this game to grow your deck. When you take this action, you choose a card to add to your deck and play it down in front of you. This becomes the first card in your new stack, and you benefit from it immediately. These new cards are powerful and support the process of picking up your cards promptly after five cards played. This differs from Concordia, where you limp along with less lucrative actions to delay picking up your cards. Transatlantic starts with each player deploying a sailing ship as well as a purchase steamer from the ship row that will be placed on the board with the captain and coal ready to start making a transatlantic trip. The ship row consists of a constantly shifting display of boats for purchase. The oldest ship on the left is sold at cost, whereas newer ships on the right will cost more. As you purchase ships, they filter to the left, and the remaining ship on the far left will leave the ship row to be added to the docks. Boats on the docks are sorted by color and contribute to scoring. Factoring the valuation of each ship is a thinky puzzle as you weigh which ships you will purchase and which will get sent to those docks. Each ship represents one year in the time of this historic era, and newer ships are always given preferential berth in each harbor that is in the game. Once you purchase a boat, you will be placing it in a harbor, ordered from youngest to oldest ship. As newer ships start to bring more cargo and passengers and routes across the Atlantic, they begin to push out the older boats. Eventually, ships will be pushed right off the board and will be scrapped, scoring their owner in-game victory points and taking one final cruise to bring their owner some cash. Having your ships scrapped is very thematic to the real lives of these majestic ships, but it isn't ideal. This brings up the other Gertz influence on this game, 2010's Navigador. Like a Navigador, you can take valuable time and money to invest in how you will score points. Transatlantic's take is that you can invest in different colors of shipping houses, coal technology, or blue ribbon success. The colors of these investments relate to the five colors of the ships, black, blue, red, white, and green. When you score for a ship, you score based on a track influenced by those investments plus how many ships of that color are in the docks. The strategy of this game is knowing what colors are more lucrative and finding ways to purchase boats that will give you more points during the game. Obviously, the longer you go before scoring your ship, the more you can earn. If it isn't clear, I love this game. The magic for me is that I want to own every single ship like Pokemon. I want to catch them all and I enjoy the experience of weighing the decision of which ship will help me more. 
The more I play and know the detailed backstory of every ship I encounter in the game, the richer my thematic connection to these ships. This is compounded by the fact that only one ship from the 50 ships in the game survives in a museum today. Every other ship from this era is gone, wrecked, or scrapped. The biographies of each ship make this game for me, and the gameplay is elegant, and it just works well in every way. Matt Gertz found a perfect creative match for transatlantic and artist Dominic Mayer. The cover brings you right into the game, and the illustrations of ships are detailed and lovely. The art is spot on, and I really appreciate the attention to all the beautiful little details in this excellently researched and rendered game. There is one issue that I hope will be addressed in future printings. The game could easily have incorporated a different style of flag for each color. Please design for the color impaired. It isn't hard, it just takes a little extra time and planning. I am frustrated that this needs to even be said in 2017. In the meantime, just know the transatlantic is unfortunately not colorblind friendly. My name is Katherine Harmon. You can find me on BGG as Cat Library and Kybrarian on Twitter. See you later. Hi everyone, it's Lindsay here and Happy New Year to you all. This episode I'm going to talk about A Handful of Stars, designed by Martin Wallace, with artwork by Odysseus Stamaglu, published by Tree Frog Games. It's a 2-4 play game with a 90-120 to minute duration. If you listened to episode 22 of the 5 by when I talked about Mythotopia, you would know that I was considering A Handful of Stars. This is the third in Wallace's kind of trilogy of games, as they're all based on the same mechanics with different themes and slight variations. And despite finding Mythotopia a bit of a slog in places and not being totally immersed in the theme, I enjoyed it enough to want to keep playing it and appreciate what a decent game it was. I first got excited about Handful of Stars this time last year when it was first announced, and I was taken with the theme and the artwork initially, as well as it being a deck builder and an area control game, two genres I very much enjoy. So I decided last month to bite the bullet and finally get it. And when it arrived, I was not disappointed. I knew I made the right decision because for a start, it's absolutely beautiful. The quality and the box and the artwork, it's all positively edible. The game itself is essentially controlling and fighting for territory across a fictional galaxy. You have a board with planet tiles. Their locations are randomised each time you play. You start with a faction of alien and a deck of starter cards and planets that are yours. You play cards from your hand for either their symbols or an action. You can use the symbols to move, colonise a planet, build fleets and star bases. When you move to a planet of an alien or another player, use your cards or any abilities you have to do combat. Each time you colonise or build an outpost on a planet, you receive a card of that planet to add to your deck. And each time you colonise, you unlock a space on your player board and choose a development tile. You play up to 14 rounds and the winner is to play the most points on the score track. I'm hugely into sci-fi and space themes. One of the first stories I ever wrote as a child was a 185 page fully illustrated novella called Another Planet, where a girl, not unlike me, trained with NASA and went to space to explore a new planet and met aliens called Zogs. One of my favourite shows growing up was Red Dwarf, and I've always loved space-themed movies and now tabletop games. The aesthetic of A Handful of Stars is very low sci-fi, it's a little grimy and gritty, not flashy or overblown, and the artwork on the planet cards especially really captures the essence of some good old-fashioned hard sci-fi. But the game itself is smashing. It exceeded my expectations in playing more smoothly and being more immersive than Mythotopia. I've said before that there is something so satisfying to me about seeing my colour tokens spread across the board. I just love games where the conflict is heavy. If you play a lot of two-player games and don't mind getting a bit aggro of each other, then games like this and Turret Sounds Dark are perfect. Because if you want to win, 
then you have no choice but to go in all guns blazing on your opponent. Of course, with a two-player plus game, it might not feel quite so personal. But the best part of fighting is AI. The alien-controlled planets that you have to take a chance with, because their power value is hidden until you arrive there and attempt to take over, you have to be mighty brave, mighty stupid, or go in armed to the teeth just in case. And sometimes I do all three. Obviously, being prepared is probably the best course of action. The combat is a good opportunity to play cards you put in your reserve or utilise one of the developments of technologies you may have bought. I love when the other player forgets the technology you got earlier on, for example using population as a combat value, because that's really going to help you in a difficult combat and make you a lot tougher to beat, and sometimes the uh, other player forgets that you've got it. There is always, of course, the opportunity to retreat, which I never do unless absolutely necessary, and usually I'll fight till the bitter end. I very much like deck building mechanics in both Mythotopia and Stars because of the reserves. In Stars you have two reserves, one for any cards you may want to use later on, and another for cards that's specifically meant for your reserves, but both have limited spaces unless you get yourself a development which boosts your reserve space. They are a great way to increase your hand size, but it also means what you're holding in your reserves is public information, which may give your strategy away a little unless your opponents aren't paying due attention. I really love the multi-use cards and the way that they have you umming and ahhing over the best way to use them, sometimes giving you the should I or shouldn't I moments where you really have to up the options which in my opinion makes games the great fun that they are. It's not a point salad, but there are some bonuses to be had if you collected developments that gave you extra ends of game points. Other than that, it's solely based on how much territory you control on the board and how many outposts and colonies you have, meaning that during the game you know that every move you make counts and your victory may depend on it. It's also nice that the alien factions can give you different abilities to use and skills that amp up the replayability of the game and gives you opportunities for employing further strategy. It's also quite a long game. A two-player game can take up to two and a half after three hours so it's not a get it out and play whenever you want kind of game you have to be fairly energized and focused but sometimes I like those games keep me happy as a pleasant distraction and to keep my brain ticking along nicely so it's definitely not a bad thing by any means my only complaint about the game is the slightly hefty setup how small the writing on the planets is and how the colors of the planets aren't very well defined i don't have great eyesight but it's not a huge problem for me i don't have any issues with color but if you do then this game isn't too great in that respect but the good news is it's really only an issue during the setup and not too much thereafter. Aside from that, I'm pleased to say this was a great final purchase of 2017, and if you perhaps leaning toward getting this game but wasn't quite sure, then I'll help you out and say, do it, because I don't think you'll regret it. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube channel, ShinyHappyMeeples, or my blog, www.shinyhappymeeplesblog.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, Meeples Co. Bye for now! Rhino Hero Super Battle is Scott Frisco and Steven Strump's 2017 hit dexterity follow-up to 2014's Rhino Hero from Haba Games. Rhino Hero Super Battle wasn't exactly the game I was planning on covering this week, but having spent the last two weeks off with the kids, it is by far our most played game of the break. I'm really glad I was able to pick up a copy in the Jack Fassel Memorial Fund auction. Thank you, Haba, for offering it as a prize to bid on. In base Rhino Hero, you are stacking wall cards, which are vertical cards that you have intentionally bent to form walls, and placing a roof card on top. The pattern on the roof will dictate where the walls will be for the next roof placed. This allows you to set up some less than ideal placements for your next opponent, and makes for a lot of the gameplay. You want to set up a difficult build for them next, so that they're more likely to knock the building over and lose. For Rhino Hero Super Battle, you are also stacking cards, but instead of the roof cards dictating what cards your opponent will have to build next, you now have floor cards which designate what walls you will have to place to support it. This puts you more in control of what you build and where. 
Super Battle also starts with three foundation squares next to each other. Each square has a yellow dot that designates where the support walls for the first floor must be placed. This means there are multiple towers going up, towers that can also be built across and merged as they grow up. I have to say, the building options in Rhino Hero Super Battle really makes it much more interesting of a game for me. The biggest change in Rhino Hero Super Battle is that there's generally no longer one loser and everyone else wins, but one winner. Which, making the game more competitive is fine, I'm just not really sure I'm super keen on how that's handled. At the start of a game, everyone takes one of the four heroes, the titular Rhino Hero, Giraffe Boy, Big E, or Backwind, and three floor tiles each. Three or more floor tiles are placed face up to form a draw pile. On your turn, you choose which of the three floor tiles in your hand you wish to place. You then set up the wall or walls as specified on the floor tile and place them and then set your floor on top. This can either be one or two short or tall walls, or the really interesting short and tall walls. The short and tall allow you to build across different levels of the floors and make for some really interesting structures. Next is the phase called Spider Monkey Attack. If your floor has a spider monkey symbol on it, you take a spider monkey from the supply and hang it on the floor. If the monkey falls, that's fine. Just keep trying until the monkey hangs on. So long as nothing collapses, you move to the next phase. Now, I assume the spider monkeys were added to make the game more difficult, but in all our games we have never had a building collapse while placing a spider monkey. Maybe we've just lucked out, but this phase seems a little silly to me. Finally, you roll a die to see where you move your hero. On a roll of 1 to 3, you move your hero up that many floors in the structure. If you roll a 0, you stay where you are, and if you roll a negative 1, you move down one floor. In theory, it's a 1 in 6 chance for each result except for 1, which is 1 in 3 chances. Yet, for most games, most of us just sit on the ground floor for a very long time, especially in a 4-player game. But, if you do happen to get on a floor of the building, then you check to see if you're the same level as another hero. If you are, super battle occurs which means you each roll a modified d6. This of course is my son's favorite part. The new person on the level gets a d6 that is only evens, 2, 4, and 6, while the defender gets a d6 that is only odds, 1, 3, and 5, which means the aggressor has the clear advantage. The losing hero moves down a level, and if they manage to move down to a level with another hero, another super battle happens. At the end of the turn, the player with their hero on the highest level gets the superhero medal. If at any point all or part of the building collapses, you check to see who has a superhero medal. If they cause the collapse, then everyone else wins, otherwise they win. Rhino Hero Super Battle, like Rhino Hero, is clearly a kid's game, but one that adults can enjoy as well. To increase the difficulty for adults or older kids, you can flip some or all of the foundations to show the red dot side. These provide fewer places for you to start your structures, making for much more wobbly towers. I've also found playing with my kids that playing from one side, instead of from straight ahead, adds more difficulty for adults playing with kids. So that's Rhino Hero Super Battle. Overall, a worthy successor to Rhino Hero, but I do have some quibbles. First of all, the theme doesn't work for me. Why are heroes battling? Especially just for being on the same floor as another hero. I really wish this game was more cooperative with the heroes working together to, say, beat the spider monkeys or something. Second, the randomness of the dice rolls can get frustrating to me, but clearly I'm just spoiled by my euros, as my kids generally don't seem to mind unless they've also been stuck on the ground floor for several turns. But really that's all I can complain about. I like the building in Super Battle much better, and the art by T. Swords is wonderfully fun to look at as always. 
and the gameplay is so fast and fun that we usually play a couple games each time we break it out. If you enjoy Rhino Hero, and especially if you have younger kids, I recommend trying Rhino Hero Super Battle. Until next time, if you wish to further discuss Heroic Sphenicidae or Herbivorous Megafauna of Africa, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Risley. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and today I wanted to talk about what just might be the perfect game for taking to family events. Designed by Rydger Dorn, Las Vegas was published in 2012 by Aaliyah and provides exciting, dice-chucking area-majority fun for 2-5 to five players in just 30 minutes or so, which leaves you plenty of time for a second or third game after dinner. Las Vegas is a game that's easy to teach but can be enjoyed by gamers of all levels of experience and interest. Six casino cards are laid out in order to set up the game, each of which corresponds to one face of a six-sided die. Players then shuffle up the money cards and deal them out to each casino until they each have a minimum of $50,000 available. However, since the card denominations go up to $90,000, it's not inconceivable that an individual casino might end up a lot more desirable because it's offering a lot more money. Once all the money's been dealt out, players start trying to claim a share of the cash that's on the table. To do so, they get a set of 8 dice in their color, and on their turn roll all of the dice they haven't yet placed. They then choose a number that they rolled, and place all dice showing that result in the matching casino, staking a claim. Play continues around the table until everyone has placed all of their dice, and then the money's distributed. Players go casino by casino, and whoever has the largest group of dice on that particular casino gets the highest valued card that's present there. If there's more than one card, the person with the second highest group will get the next highest card, and so on. But things get a little more interesting than that. You see, any tied sets of dice cancel each other out, and are therefore not considered when deciding who has the largest group and therefore who gets the payout. So for example, if I had three dice, Kit had three dice, and Jason had just one die on a particular casino, then only Jason would get any money from it. After all the winnings have been distributed, players reset for another round, and then after four rounds have been played, they'll count up their overall winnings to see who had the most successful night at the tables. The choices in Las Vegas are easy to comprehend, but that doesn't make the decision of what to do with your freshly rolled dice an easy one. Every time I teach or play the game, players are left groaning over the so-called terrible choice they're facing, as they contemplate where to stake a claim and what they might be willing to give up. Add in the conflicting desires to play a ton of dice and lock something up, with the desire to save dice for later in the round, and you can see why my family Christmas involved a decent amount of relatively good-natured cursing this year. This is a game full of stand-up moments, player interaction, and blocking. And so far, even when someone's having a fairly lousy round, I've never felt they weren't at least enjoying the spectacle. It's also very easy for people to team up and play a color together, which lets you add extra players to the mix, or even include younger kids, and we've had a lot of success with my nephews, making it, as I said earlier, the perfect game for family events. There's also a lower player count variant in the roles that my husband and I use when playing the game two-player. In two-player Las Vegas, you split the dice of another color between the two players, and they'll roll this neutral color in addition to their own. When a player chooses which number they want to place, they put all dice with that result on the casino, regardless of whether it's a neutral color or their own colored die. When the payout occurs, the neutral color simply acts as if a third player was present, and any winnings that player would have gotten are just simply discarded. But it stops the two-player game from being too open, and leads to some pretty hilarious moments when you somehow manage to roll the dice in such a way that you've just cancelled out all your own winnings by rolling the wrong thing on your neutral dice. 
So if any of this sounds interesting to you, I have to let you know there's various editions available out there, which all play the same. My own copy is the English language Las Vegas, but you can also find the German Vegas, which uses art of actual Vegas casinos on the tiles instead of the easily recognizable parody art that are found in my copy. The newest edition, and possibly the easiest to find if you're in the States, is actually a Target exclusive. This one's simply named Vegas Dice Game and comes in a die-shaped box, making it fairly easy to spot. In this version, the casino art has been removed entirely, but it all plays exactly the same, so I recommend just grabbing whichever one you're able to get your hands on. That is, unless you have a really burning desire to gamble at the Sphinx. There's also a Boulevard expansion, which is unfortunately not available in the United States. I'd love to get my hands on this as it offers various modules to shake things up just a little without making the game unrecognizable, but I simply haven't got around to importing one yet, so I'm not going to go into details of exactly what's involved. Las Vegas offers a quick-playing, fast-dice game that retains enough strategy to be interesting. Each game has enough luck involved to result in a pretty tense but fun experience, and there's very little downtime as every player's role might just affect your shot at that prize you've been eyeing. It's an absolute staple of my collection, and one I know I can play with just about anyone. So until next time, when I'm not rolling nothing but ones despite the juicy cash available on 5, you'll be able to find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. I watched a lot of PBS as a child. When I was around six, I obsessively started watching The Joy of Painting with Bob Ross. In a half an hour, this soft-spoken, mellow man would transport my first-grade brain to a snowy mountain or a tree-lined river, all while instilling the idea that there is no mistakes, only happy accidents. I begged my mom to buy me things so I could oil paint. She, smartly, gave me a much more inexpensive solution with a sketch pad and some water paints, and for months, I painted along with him. Spoiler alert, I was terrible, but it didn't matter. Bob made it all right. Bob Ross and Joy of Painting gave some much-needed moments of calm and encouragement to this kid. In Bob Ross, The Art of Chill, designed by Prospero Hall, you and your game group can virtually also paint along with Bob, creating your own happy little trees and fluffy clouds in hopes of achieving the ultimate state of chill. At the start, each player receives a palette and some randomly drawn art supplies in the way of paint colors and brushes. A display of four additional art supplies are laid out, and a random painting is drawn and displayed for everyone to work towards. Then, the Bob Meeple, and yes, there is a Bob Ross Meeple in this game, is placed at the leftmost space. Now you are all ready to paint. Each painting is made up of three features that need a certain combination of paint colors and a specific brush in order to complete. On your turn, you can take three actions, which could be to acquire more art supplies, add some paint to your palette, clean your palette if you realize you're headed in the wrong artistic direction, maybe you can learn a new technique to help you paint better going forward, or if you have the right combination of paint and brushes, you can complete a feature. Each time you complete a feature, you earn points, moving you ever closer to that nirvanic level of chill. If you complete a feature before your opponents, you can earn a few more bonus points, and if you find that you are painting even faster than Bob himself, well, that's an amazing feat and therefore 
even more chill fills your soul. Yes, not only are you competing against your fellow artist, you are competing against the man himself. Before each player's turn, they roll the Bob die, which could get that player an extra action, or it could help Bob move closer to completing that painting should Bob's iconic silhouette be rolled. But don't worry, even when Bob moves, you get to draw a card which can grant the group a temporary bonus, and each card also features a Bobism, such as artists are expected to be a little different, or you want your tree to have character. You want it to be a special tree. It's like it lulls you into a state where you don't even care that Bob is kicking your artistic behind. Once someone, either the players or Bob, completes a painting, a new one is revealed, and play continues until one player reaches the ultimate state of chill by earning 30 victory points and wins the game and, I'm assuming, the unending respect of Bob Ross himself. There's some serious nostalgia and a touch of kitsch tied into this game. The creators of this game have leaned in heavy with their love of Bob Ross. The paintings you're working towards each round are actual images of Bob Ross's work. There's a reverence in this game whose inspiration is often relegated to just a punchline. I love Bob, and it's obvious that everyone who worked on this game does too. So let's talk the game itself. Do you need to feel those warm fuzzies about our PBS painter to enjoy it? Probably not. More experienced gamers might struggle to feel strongly challenged. It's a pretty basic hand management and set collection game at its core. But did this experienced gamer enjoy it? You bet. I played this at the end of day two at BGGCon, and it was a great game to just relax and play while talking about our day. Lately, I find myself suggesting this game when I want to play something, but I don't want to get too thinky. I think the casual board gamer would be able to pick this up relatively easily. The rules are simple, even with so many available actions each turn. There's enough to do without it feeling intimidating. I think Bob would have wanted it that way. Gameplay clocks in at about 30 to 40 minutes for a 2 to 4 player game, and it scales well for all player counts. Bob Ross The Art of Chill retails for $25 and is a Target exclusive. For what this game brings to the table, it's an absolute bargain. I've bought and played games with a price tag $10 or $15 more than that that were nowhere near as fun or versatile when playing with those of varying board game enthusiasm. So if you, like me, grew up loving the joy of painting, or even if you're just looking for a simple game with a heavy art theme, Bob Ross The Art of Chill would be a great addition to your game collection. For the 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Thank you for listening to the 5 by. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games, or join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or follow all the links on 5 bygamescom the 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.